Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Welcome to the Fair Perspectives Podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. In this episode, we speak with Kimi Katiti. Kimi is an interdisciplinary artist based in Los Angeles. She creates visual art, music, and writing on a variety of topics and themes, and is also an avid skateboarder who devotes much of her time to advocacy and initiatives meant to empower young girls through skateboarding. We discuss her formative years growing up in Uganda, Tanzania, and South Africa before moving to the United States, her experience learning about America as a college student in Los Angeles, the ways critical pedagogy was infused into her coursework, the unhealthy emotional and psychological effects becoming, quote, woke had on her outlook and personal life, her slow transition out of that mindset, the power of forgiveness, and the value of having different lenses from which to view the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Kimi Katiti. Kimi Katiti, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here with y'all. This is great. So uh, you've done you've done a video for Fair, and you've done a bunch of videos on your YouTube channel. Uh, and people should know more about you if they don't already. So why don't we start by just giving us a little bit of your background? Where where were you born? Where did you grow up? How did you end up here? Where we where we are all chatting today? Totally. Um, I, well, it's really an honor to be here with you, Melissa and Angel. Like, I think a lot of people, I wouldn't be vocal if it wasn't for people who have been brave during the past couple of years. So I do credit a lot of, you know, my continued, like, feeling brave enough to speak out and make videos on this community of, like, heterodox speakers and so thank you so much for having me. But my backstory is I was born, actually born in Boston, Massachusetts. Mm. And my, my mom's side of the family kind of all lived there. Uh, but I grew up in Uganda, um, Tanzania, and I spent uh, about seven years of my high school time in South Africa. Um, and once I was done with high school, I kind of got into music uh, when I was around 17, 18. And not too long after that, put out two singles. One of them was produced by my brother. And both of those, like each of those two tracks, one went number one on a gospel chart in Kenya and another one just went number one mainstream, a battle cry in Uganda. Um, and it was, it was very exciting. I was very unprepared, but it was cool because it was a club track, battle cry. And that got, you know, it was, it was like this gospel song, gospel lyrics, but like 
the beat was very like reggaeton dancehall type thing and, and so a lot of people loved it in the club apparently and so yeah that was a really great opportunity for me and it made me want to pursue audio production so that uh influenced my decision to move to california to los angeles and to pursue a, a degree in uh, audio production so first four years of my time here uh, 2014 to 2017 i guess um I was in college, I was in school, but during that time, while I was also, you know, pursuing a sort of like a music education, I also developed this like mindset through like the critical theory and critical race uh, pedagogy kind of being introduced in our general education classes, kind of left college with a very like woke, you know, mindset, I guess that's the term we're using now, but it was more so influenced by media, college and a lot of other factors. Um, so once I came out of college, I was burdened with a certain like pessimism, like a very negative worldview, um, very offended most of the time. A lot of people, I think, would describe that as just being hyper aware of like systemic racism and microaggressions. But I, I simplify it down to just saying that I was, you know, offended and I, I was given like a, a right to be offended at everything that I noticed, uh, especially with regards to race. I just found that I was very unproductive. It was kind of counterintuitive of an empowerment message for like a young black woman. And so uh, then eventually in late 2018, I was kind of fed up with that, decided that I'm going to take account of like every offense as much as I can remember, even like the little down to like very little slight things um, between like friend groups, like tiny microaggressions just sort of began forgiving them as like a personal journey. I wasn't a part of like a class. I didn't take a course. It was just like, let's just do this, see what happens because I, I am not used to being this offended every day and having this much depression. So fast forward about a year and a half later, um, I just found it hard to kind of balance that those two worldviews, like, you know, this lens of my progressions and being marginalized and everyone hating you between just feeling like I'm, I kind of, I'm letting go every offense. I'm just going to let go of that. And that's what my fair video actually talks about, that skateboarding moment where I realized that critical race theory was a lie, kind of around mid-2019, um, mid to late 2019. And then 2020 happened. That just like opened my eyes so much more, especially the summer of 2020 uh, when the protests were happening, but public health officials weren't kind of using, uh, you know, very like, common sense approach to that being like hey be safe like you don't want anyone getting covid or anything stay indoors so that for me was like the final crack of everything and um i was like i decided to just start sharing my personal journey like i found it to be very uh freeing to let go of these these grievances and having developing an, an attitude of gratitude and a lot of that was influenced by my time in south africa learning about nelson mandela and Des desmond tutu like that's kind of the core of, of what they do, what they have accomplished and what they come out telling other people to do. Um, so much so that pe it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it because Desmond Tutu has two books on forgiveness and he was like a very, a, like very active apartheid activist. So it's not just this thing I, you know, it's not just like this, I don't, I don't use any slurs, but C-O-O-N, it's not that type of attitude. It's actually a really like activist attitude, so. Here we are now. I just decided to air my mind out with YouTube videos and yeah, yeah. So yeah, 
that's, that's but, but Kimmy, you you've been a, a a skater for a long time too, and in part, um, you've come to the views that you've come to because of some of these past experiences as a skater. I mean, that's firstly, right. I have to say that's really rad. I don't know if the kids use that word nowadays. It's still there, uh, <laughs> but you totally. Dated can you kind of des- describe that? <laughs> Oh, maybe I did. Also, it was not cool. And furthest thing from a skater. Um, But can you describe, you know, your journey skating? Like how you really got into it, when, and then how you, how part of what you experienced there actually shaped your views now? Absolutely. Um, I started skateboarding when I was, when I was living in Tanzania, which was between 2003 and 2006. So when I was nine years old, I started skating and I, w- I would say, as far as I knew, I was like the only one of like, maybe apart from like two other people in another high school, but I was like the only like black woman skating, if, if anyone that was ever skating, period. But I just kind of didn't care. Um, and I, I mentioned this as well in, in the, the video that I did for FAIR, is that my siblings were like, you know, this is not really something that black women do it's kind of like a white man's sport but I, I just couldn't see like what the point was there so I, I would skate regardless and then eventually when I moved to South Africa in 2006 that's when I was kind of more aware of like racial tensions and racism and I was kind of coming into like trying to be trying to like transition from like a girl to a woman and so it was like, I don't want to skate and look like, you know, this tomboy. So I dropped it, uh, but also because of the fear of just like going to a skate park and having like the potential of just having like racial slurs hurled at me. I was like, I don't want that. I don't need that right now. I'm already insecure as it is. Um, and then fast forward to after I moved to the United States and once I was done with college in 2019, I picked up skateboarding again because I did notice a wave of diverse women um skateboarding on Instagram and I was like oh like this thing that was I was terrified to even attempt in South Africa like everyone's kind of doing it now that 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 fear is broken so I dove into it but I think I was very I still maintained that that idea that white men always just are, are in a permanent state of like trying to hate you and like destroy your life I'm putting it in very simple work words but it's a more complex feeling than that and um and I'm sure you understand like I'm sure you know what I mean you know when you feel like like oh because of x identity marker someone does just naturally have like uh like they're just your enemy and so I was scared to go to skate parks alone and I would only feel safe within affinity groups and sort of like safe spaces for like skate sessions for women of color or trans or queer skaters. And I didn't feel like it was, I could only go, I didn't want to only limit my time skating to those groups because eventually like schedules wouldn't align. People couldn't skate all the time. So I was like, let me make this documentary series, going to like skate parks around LA and kind of rate the vibe, rate sort of how, you know, woke the space is, if people are aggressive, if we, as like marginalized people are going to come into contact with like uh, any sort of harmful energy, whatever that might mean. And so through that process of documenting skate parks um, in 2019, on the cusp of 2020, I was like, you know what? There are a lot of nice people. 
And it was really, it was really weird because I, I had really like everything, media, college, like even the affinity spaces sometimes would reinforce this idea that white men are just not good and they're out to get you. And I remember this one time I was filming, um, we went to Cherry Skate Park in Long Beach and this guy after like our skate session had like two bags of like three books and he was like, by the way, came to me and my friend was like, hey, I have these bags of books, do you guys want them? And it was, it was just like a really kind and random gesture. And I kept kind of encountering these very, very nice people. Obviously you had people who were just bad. You had individuals who were just good. Maybe even those terms are too simple. It's very complex. Some people just focused on skating. And so their demeanor comes off as like, I don't, you know, I want you out of the way. Some people are just extra nice. They grew up, you know, maybe family oriented and they're not afraid of people who look different than them. And so that kind of led me to the conclusion that um, just the whole, the whole ideology, mainstream woke ideology, um, it wasn't adding up and it wasn't very, it wasn't always the, the, you know, the reality out there in the real world, if that makes sense. So yeah. it's kind of where we are. I'm curious actually to find out more about your experience growing up because yeah. you're in a relatively unique situation where, you know, you were born in, in the U S you were born in Boston, but you, it seems like you pretty soon after moved to Uganda and then, you know, bounced around the continent of Africa a little bit okay. before actually returning to the States. So growing up, what was your conception of these sorts of things? How did you view the world and how did the, the world view you? Because it is a different context, right? A lot of times yeah. I think people make the mistake of grafting the American context of race and all those, all the, you know, things that come with it onto other contexts in other places where it's just different. So I'm curious, what was, what was your experience like growing up? Did you have these kind of ideas or did your worldview, what, what was your worldview actually? I would just love to hear about it. Yeah. Well, great question. I feel like it's, I've worked on trying to put these into words for the for like the different countries but they have been very distinct and very different so growing up in Uganda I would say because of representation in the media at the time this was from like maybe let's say like 1995 to um, just before I moved to Tanzania like 2002 there was this whole idea growing up in my childhood you would only see white representation in like media like movies you know, um, Sleepless in Seattle, uh, Spider-Man, like everything was very like white and obviously like white and male. And um, I did kind of have this idea of like, because I don't see myself as, and I'm still very passionate about representation because of that, but I did have a sort of sense of in like that vision that I am less than those people represented because they had the full scope of humanity like attached to them. Like they had the range of emotions and all those things. And, and, you know, you feel like because you don't see yourself, you are a little bit less than. So I would say I, I did growing up struggle with a sort a version of like internalized racism um, for lack of like a better term. Maybe there is mm -hmm. a better term out there, but yeah. And so I then moved 2003, I moved to Tanzania and Tanzania like completely flipped that because Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, the capital city of Tanzania, is extremely diverse in, in ways that I don't think like Americans are very aware of just yet. 
And so you have a you have a lot of like ethnicities that do like assimilate into the Swahili like African lifestyle. It's not the it's not like the it's like the flip of colonialism. I don't know how to put that into great words, but you have Germans, Italians, Ethiopians, especially a huge like Indian community who have like a combination of Hindu and Swahili uh, sort of vernacular. You have Germans. I don't know what might maybe, you know, links back to like colonial days living there as well. And they speak Swahili. It's not like they come in and they, you know, they come in old Deutsche and like they actually learn Swahili and then speak Swahili. So that made me realize like African culture can be valued um, by different people around the world. Like not everyone's just like looking down on Africa and being like, okay, let me now impose all my like superiority over you. It was like there there are just genuine people who are not in it to just be like, you know, I'm like the only white person in this land and I'm going to, you know, everyone's going to be my subject. It's it was just super diverse. I mean, I can't even put it into words. So growing up in that season of like 2003 to 2006 and just, you know, everyone was just on the same level was so healthy for me. And I, I think even one of the reasons I kind of really didn't care about skateboarding, I was like, look, I'm going to do it anyway. Like, I, I don't care about that whole, like, white men do this only. And then moving to South Africa, that was also very, very different from, like, Tanzania. Because, like, South Africa, like, that place is racist. Like, it was extremely, <laughs> yeah, it is so, yeah. especially 2006, like, maybe now things have changed um i don't know if it's like for the better or the worse but back then uh i mean people would train their dogs just to give you an example people would train their dogs to only attack black people um so when you know if like a thief broke in the assumption was the thief was black so that's how they would go to dog trainers and be like they would train the dog to look out for black people so every time as a black person you're walking past someone walking their dog it's like a guarantee that the dog dog is going to try to like bark at you and attack you. And it wasn't even, it's not like a, like a hush hush thing. It's like very out in the open. Like everyone knows this. And so we lived in an estate where it's like, anytime you wanted to take a walk, like the dogs would just be extra vicious towards us just because we were black. And, and so that's a tiny, that's like a tiny example of like the amount of like tension that there was, but because of the like precedent set by, people like Desmond Tutu talking about race and racism, it wasn't hard. Like it wasn't a big deal. It was just like, it would, things would just come up. Questions would come up, whether that was out of ignorance or whether someone actually wanted to know something. It was like, I get it. You were shelled in during the apartheid era. You might not know, you know, what this means to a black person, but I will like, educate you in that moment and it's not a big deal it's not like i'm gonna scold you and you need to be fired it was like mm. da, 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 learning moment uh kind of move on so while the racial tensions were extremely high it was also easy to still talk about race at least while i was in south africa for those seven years well yeah so i'm i would love to hear more about that because i mean there's a conflict there between mm-hmm you know, how high the tensions are to the point where it's, it's out in the open that people are training yeah. their dogs to mm-hmm. basically profile. Right. Yes. Uh, but then you're saying that the conversation was kind of open about it and that something could be yeah. done about it. 
So yeah. how did how do you how did that work out where you have this very explicit racism? Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also this very open communication, as you're saying. What was yeah. the effect of one on the other? Yeah, I feel like because it was just very tense and a lot of it was just born out of like bad, just bad ideas about black people, thanks to apartheid. People were ready to kind of like slowly break out of that. So despite the tensions being high, I think heightened awareness just made it easy because it was like the elephant in the room. So you might as well always like address it if ever anything came up. I don't know how to put it into words, but it just was easier because it was so apparent. I don't know if that makes sense. Like it wasn't like a, I would say it's hard in America to talk about these issues because you're kind of trying to like really dig stuff up. And a lot of them are very, like you have to read through a lot of, you know, a lot of ideas and intellectual thoughts and that sort of thing. Whereas in South Africa, it's just like, someone makes like a really horrible comment about your hair, you have to like address it there and then. Or um, I remember my one friend, and the thing is like people were like, they were friends with one another, like whether you're white or black, like they were trying to progress past that ignorance, past that, you know, entire what, like five decades or more of, you know, their parents and their grandparents having these horrible ideas of black people. They were trying to like, how can I be more unified with, people who don't look like me. So I remember my one friend, Natasha, was like, why do Black people walk so slowly? And I, it was, if someone said that, I feel like if someone said that in like an American context, it would be just like terrible. But I just quickly quipped back, like, what, you know, why do white people walk so fast? It was just like a really quick, like, tit for tat. And it was over. And I think, you know, from that moment, you know, they learn like, okay, I'm not going to, you know, simplify people to such like boxy terms. I don't know if that makes sense, Angel. I, I hope that kind of clarified that a little bit. It does. Well, Kimmy, I, I, I'm actually curious if you have any inkling because I've actually spent quite a lot of time in South Africa, in particular, oh, nice. um, Johannesburg, Cape Town, and Port Elizabeth, which mm. is random. But um, I, I'm wondering if you have any inkling about how South Africa got to this point in a way that yeah. have strayed so far away from Mandela's message um, and, and what he, he symbolized for really actually the world. Yeah. He's such a, a impact, an, an impactful figure. I mean, singular figure. Yeah. And, you know, I, it, it's interesting to me because South Africa is one of those countries in the last few years have descended, has descended even further into yeah more chaos and more civil strife. Mm-hmm. Um, like the recent riots in KwaZulu-Natal. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. No, that's right. Um, I, I, I have friends that, that, you know, think that South Africa's racial identitarian policies in an effort to kind of make up for the past is contributing to a lot of tensions today. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if that's true. So I wanted to, to see if, if mm-hmm. you have any inkling about, about why this is happening to this, honestly, beautiful rainbow nation. Yeah. That's a very great point. I think personally, this is just my personal opinion. I'm not super informed. And a lot of people actually, even on the, like my my dad still lives there. Uh, Some of my friends there are not quite sure what happened. But I I do believe to an extent the separation of the tribes during apartheid has a lot to do with like the xenophobia, A, which is 
a big issue that still kind of needs to be addressed in South Africa, but also the internal tribal tensions, because I believe there was there was just an uproar with with uh, the president, the former president, Jacob Zuma, um, and kind of him being held accountable for certain things that he did. And basically in KwaZulu-Natal, I, from what I understand, there was just an uproar because of that. So I do think it had a lot to do with the separation of the tribes. In a, during apartheid, it wasn't just like white and black separated. It was also like Zulu separated from like Spedi and like from Kosa. Like, so those divisions also existed. I think what you're seeing now is the outcome still from that like pitting people apart and, and like pitting them against each other. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's the danger that Angel brought up just now, which is yeah. grafting the American view of black and white onto South Africa. Yeah. Because that was, I remember getting into a cab in South Africa and and the the driver, oh, I think he was Zulu and he kept bitching about he kept like like the whole ride was just like, oh, you know the the Kosas and blah blah blah. Like the whole ride was just hating on another group. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, my my entire view of of uh, race relations in South Africa was actually I went to research more after that and I realized just, you know, within the Bantu family, like it, it, yes. there were just so much more divisions that, than this simple black or white, you know, just framework. So that, exactly. that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, it is, it's, and the racial divisions as well are different from the America, um, the way that things are divided in America. So you wouldn't have like black or white. And if you're black, that's just because you, you have like a, a grandparent or someone who was black in your family line. It's like black colored and Indian, I believe, and then white. So there was, it's even different in within that, like, you know, context. So uh, just again, to echo what you said, Angel, like there is a sort of juxtaposition or at least like an overlay of like, let's understand this through the American lens. And I don't think it's that simple. Yeah. But so you had to very quickly adopt the American lens because then you, you decided to move back to the United States, you moved to Los Angeles and you enrolled in university. So, and this is where I think the shift starts to happen. So I, so it's interesting. I wanted to know about your background because I was, I was wondering if your worldview had a kind of bow tie shape where it was very wide and then it became very narrow and now it's wider again, Yes, but it's, it's even more complicated than that, right? Because you, in each country that you lived in, in Africa, you had a different experience. And yes. It shifted your perspective a bit. And so now you're going to shift your perspective again when you get to the university. Tell us about your experience coming here. What was it like? And yeah. how did how did your uh, perspective start to shift? Yeah, um, I was definitely very, because of the Tanzania and South Africa experience, I was like, let me not assume what American life is like. And let me just learn and receive and kind of put my trust in my professors to provide that like very accurate to reality education. Um, so I, I was ready to just know how, you know, what are the ins and outs of American life? I know I struggled heavily with the language shift, even though I've always been an English speaker my entire life, like the switch from like, British Ugandan English to like American terms in and of itself was kind of difficult 
Um, and that's not just like for like car parts, like boot is trunk, but there were different, there were different ways of speaking that were very hard for me to like understand. So in order to get along with people, I was like, let me just, let me, let me be quiet. Let me kind of be like the person at the back of the room, just soaking it in and learning. But through that process, I, you know, a lot of like this, you know, critical pedagogy was thrown at me and I didn't know at the time, I just didn't know that there was any other way to look at the world than through these terms. Um, and so that just kind of made my worldview very narrow, like you said. And um, that's when I just started experiencing once I was out of college, I was kind of experiencing like an unusual just feeling of just depression, sadness, anxiety, yeah. um, anger. And I was like, where is all this coming from? Because like, even in like racially, extremely tense South Africa, things weren't like this, um, at least mm. within myself. So what what happened there? Yeah. Tell uh, us yeah. about exactly the the sorts of things that you were learning about. Like, so you were taking, yeah. what sorts of classes were you taking? How did you end up in this kind of area where you're being exposed to critical pedagogy? Because it's not, it's not necessarily something that, you will encounter if you go to college, right? Yeah. There's not going to be like a, a class on like, this is what critical race theory, like this is, we're now learning it from like, it's like the vehicle with which you learn about different subjects sometimes. Mm. So for example, sociology, I remember sociology was one class um, and we had another class on symbolism where we learned about, especially Hollywood, and it's very, I feel like learning about Hollywood is the easiest way to sort of introduce these concepts because Hollywood does have a history of being like racist and very like patriarchal and, sure. you know, the, the white straight male is sort of the center of all these movies. So it's very easy to be like, okay, see this? This is how the entire America is. This is all people think about. So you kind of introduce it in that way. So a lot of film classes were, were viewed in that lens. And I will say, just for the record, there is, there is always some truth to that. It's not to say that, oh, now I just reject that and white males weren't always the center of movies. It's like, the, I do agree with like the whole concept of the male gaze and the white gaze and a lot of like bell hook stuff. But there was also the surrounding pedagogy of just like, this is how America is in, you know, kind of bouncing back and forth between the class. But most distinctly, I remember critical thinking, class called critical thinking, where I was like ready to learn about like logical fallacies. <laughs> I was like super excited about it because I was like, yeah, I want to learn how to debate. I used to debate in high school. And so I was very stoked. And in that class, we did not learn about any of like the actual critical thinking, like as you would imagine it being like, oh, these are, this is logic and this is how you set up an argument. It was about gentrification and um, reading news titles and like somehow, you know, it was about like reading between the lines of news titles and kind of finding the racism or the, 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 uh, the cis heteronormativity like within the article, if that makes mm. sense. So that was what constituted critical thinking that particular class <laughs> wait uh, so it's like critical theory critical theory embedded in critical thinking exactly that, that sounds like that was actually the wow. name of the class yeah i think that was kind of the intention of, of the class was to get people to to see rate like find where the racism is and i was 
Now, because I already had a premise of what critical thinking as that class should have been, like what it should have taught, I knew that this was, something was off about it, but I don't, like other students might not know that that's not actually what you are supposed to learn in like a critical thinking class. Um, so I hope that, you got a refund for that class because listen. finding racism, <laughs> finding racism everywhere is basically Twitter. You could have exactly. just learned that on Twitter. <laughs> right. It was crazy. And that was the entire, I mean, like the entire course is just going through newspapers and trying to find like, just trying to be the most woke about what's happening in the world. Mm. Yeah. And so that, I mean, I did end up like believing what the teacher was because I was still surrendering to, to the professors to teach me about American life. So I was like, okay, you know what? Uh. I I agree. I I will look for the bend and like the racism and all of these things that are around me. So, yeah. Okay. So I want to dig into this because so much of the debate, so much of the, the, or lack of conversation, the non-versation about this stuff is that is, is about, you know, the definition of these terms like critical Mm -hmm. race theory and stuff. And it's like, Oh, that's not critical race theory or critical race theory is not being taught. That's not actually what's happening. And Mm -hmm. so I think there's so much muddiness there. So what I'm getting from what you're saying is that you were kind of getting a second hand kind of a filtered version of the stuff. So you're, you're being taught by people who were informed by critical theory. Maybe they studied it themselves and it informs their own pedagogy, no matter what they're teaching, whether it's critical thinking or um, sociology or even film. Uh, yes. So does that sound right? Exactly. Yes, okay. you nailed and it. So how did you, how did you pick up on it? How, like, how did you notice, oh, this is critical theory? You know, was there anything yeah. explicit or, or was it something you slowly started to pick up somewhere? So I, for a long time, I did not know what to call that. Like, I just thought that was just it. Like, that's just how life is. So it was, I think that's why I'm very passionate about pointing out, like, you should, I mean, you can teach critical race theory, but, you know, teach it as like, be explicit, like say, this is critical race theory. It's developed by so, so, and so, but it's just presented as like, this is life. And all the terms are just thrown in there. And you kind of adopt to it as like, I see no other way. Like there was no other way for me to understand what was outside those boundaries. It was only once I exited college, went through the skateboarding community, which I don't know if you're familiar with like skate groups or, or like skateboarding affinity groups, but they do use a lot of um, queer theory, like language and to a degree like critical race theory concepts, but critical theory as a whole, like cis, mm-hmm. like cis heteronormativity, um, even feminist terms, like kind of destroying the patriarchy and all of that is sort of infused into the, mar- the sort of marginalized skater scene. So I went out of college taking those terms with me and sort of understanding how to apply them within the context of skateboarding groups. But it was only once like the... The secondhand like evidence. So there's this biblical quote that says in in Matthew 7, 15, to get a little spiritual here, it says, you shall know a prophet by by their fruit. Um, If there's bad fruit, that means that the prophet is bad. If there's good fruit, (laughs) meaning like their actions, like their Mm -hmm. seed, then you know that the prophet is good. And I was just, I was always depressed. I was always angry. I was kind of always bitter. 
like like proper depression, not like just like a emotional feeling. I mean, like I couldn't wake up most times. I ha- found it hard to take care of myself. And I was like, wh- like, what is this? Like, why am I so depressed? And why am I so triggered by, like someone would scoot over like this at like a meeting and I would feel like, the end, like that was the end of the world. Like, why do people hate me so much? That happened hundreds of times a day. Mm. And it was only once I started to kind of walk back all my offenses that that mentality started to melt away. But it was only in 2020 that I finally learned that, you know, all this stuff, I kind of did a bit of homework and I was like, oh, this is what you would call this. And this is sort of like the scholastic term for that. And that's how I was able to kind of categorize like, oh, those beliefs that I held, that was critical race theory. Oh, those beliefs Mm -hmm. I held, that was queer theory. That's feminism. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it, you, it was never really explicit. It was never told to, no. it was just kind of, you absorbed it through other, through other kind of contexts that you were in. It was being exactly. infused. And yeah. then, so you said that it had this profound effect on you where you, you were, you know, deeply depressed and kind of hypersensitive to, you know, what would be called microaggressions, things like someone scooting over a little bit, you, you know, kind of immediately interpret that in a racial and negative context. Um, yes. How long was that period, and and how how deep did it actually get before you recognized something is different? Because I'm I'm assuming you never felt that way before coming to the United to the to the states and um, studying this stuff. So there must yeah. have been some shift that you must have noticed. Yeah, I like very like vividly remember 2014 Halloween of 2014 was like the moment I accepted it. Um, accepted this reality of 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 like systemic racism and uh, sort of like Foucauldian like power structures idea or theory being real and being like yeah I, I guess like I am like I am that person that people hate because I am like a woman and I'm black it was very weird. Like it was Papa Halloween. I was going to like an event afterwards. I felt like <laughs> darkness entering my heart. It's like a very movie type thing. But I, I remember accepting it that day in a class. Uh, and I do believe this was a symbolism class. And they were talking about the hegemony. I, is that how you pronounce it? Hegemony? Hegemony? hegemony in that particular moment, moment, I was like, okay, I, I believe it is real. Um, I accept this and I think fighting it isn't gonna like help because I don't understand America. So why, you know, why fight it? Just believe it and do what you can to like be a better person. And, um, from 2014 to 2019, the moment I, I talked to a friend of mine at a skate park and I was documenting the, the tension and the vibes of that skate park in, um, Orange County. And I found that it was not that, like, there was no race. I was like, this is a, this skate park is fine. Like, no one's been mean. And my friend was like, "Mm, I had, like, the worst time. Like, I was getting all sorts of looks. And my friend was also like, you would categorize them in a marginalized category. From 2014 to that moment in 2019, like, that's the amount of time that I held those ideas. Wow. It's a long time to be depressed. Yeah, exactly. And do you think it's because of the general knowledge that the rest of the, the rest of society is basically built upon, you know, these principles that you describe like patriarchy or systematic racism, 
and and that therefore it kind of robbed you of that agency like where where do you think i mean if you look back now and and try to reflect on that experience of you know constantly being in the doldrums was it related to this idea that you know all these opportunities were denied to you because of race specifically and only and that you just felt completely robbed of your humanity yeah i kind of went through life with that perspective so it was very ingrained in like my entire persona like everything that I am became like there was so much less hope and I think we overlook the word hope and think like oh it's this like fluffy like light word but no when you really like believe that as a black woman if there's like (laughs) if there are like three other employees in a company or in my particular team who are white like that level of hope of me being advanced or even being promoted in a particular environment is so much less because I'm countering all these factors, some racism, microaggression, like, are they male? And we're going to talk about like the patriarchy. So I lit, I, it did kind of div- like my whole identity was built on the fact that I am less than, but I thought that this was an empowering way to view it. But until like things hit me like really badly in terms of health, that's when I was like, I don't, I don't think I have to look at things like this only. Um, I hope that answers the question. Unless, yeah, no, it does. But I, I just think it's so it's so crazy because you know you you held these views in 2014 that Barack Obama built an entire campaign on the message of hope, like yeah. that was his campaign slogan. Yeah, and it's it's just crazy to me that that. I mean, during, even during the time that he was president, that, you know, it, it felt like, I mean, for you that, you know, you were, this ideology was kind of robbing you of hope, of, of any hope. Exactly. And, and sending you into this spiral. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very troubling that so many kids, especially now, because they're exposed to it a lot earlier. For you, this was college. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you <laughs> tried to take classes that, that could have disabused you of <laughs> of this, you know, this this way of thinking, but even that failed. But but exposing, you know, even younger kids to it um, seems like they're going to hold on to this view for for a much longer time and a lot earlier. So that yeah, that I think is very troubling. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you talk about you talk about forgiveness a lot, and you mentioned yes. it already about Desmond Tutu and and how important that frame of mind is, or or having that inclination towards forgiveness. And I think maybe that might be at work in the dynamic that you were talking about in yes. South Africa, where someone can make a comment that over here would be explosive. You know, you'd hear about it on Twitter and it would just be yeah. a disaster for this person. But mm-hmm. taking it in stride and just kind of, you know, hashing it out with them in the moment mm-hmm. and having having the humility on both ends to kind of go, oh, yeah, you know what? That is stupid. And just kind of moving forward with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's at least what I understand from what you were saying. Yes. Um, yes. So, you know, you, you mentioned how forgiveness seems to be, seems to be absent from this lens that you had. Yeah. And, and how important it is. What, what would you say to people who disagree <clears throat> with you? Say that, no, that's not true at all. I mean, I guess, I guess maybe the better question is what about people who, went through the same sort of teaching that you did or the same, mm-hmm. same sort of took the same classes. They were right next to you, but mm-hmm. they didn't come out depressed and they didn't come out feeling these things. And they kind mm-hmm. of feel that, that, um, that instruction and that those ideas have actually 
helped them. Mm. Um, what would you account for the difference there? Yeah, um, I find it very, I would find it very hard to believe that um, people are going through this life with that lens without having some sort of like an unnecessary burden. They might have a burden and think like, oh, this is chill. Like mm. I'll use the example of like having a backpack. You might be like just wearing a backpack and you're doing all these extra tasks with a backpack on that's very heavy. And sure, you might be fine with that, but it's like, you know, what if you did just take the backpack off and put it down for a second and try those tasks again and see how that feels. Mm -hmm. And it's like, until you kind of test those that, you know, test it out, um, you might not know how unnecessary some of these uh, ideas are to, to always be aware of. Um, mm -hmm. So like in my case, the reason I always bring up forgiveness is because in terms of experiencing like up to a hundred microaggressions, at least a day. Um, if I went through each and every microaggression, right. Say I'm walking down the street. I leave my apartment right now. A car comes out of the driveway and blocks me off from walking down the path. Like I personally take that as a microaggression because it's like, they don't value me as a black woman, just trying to like walk. It's like, I'm just going to cut you off and go. So that's like first microaggression of the day in terms of an example. If in that moment, I can just say like, you know what? I forgive you. I don't know why you did that. Maybe you're in a rush. I'm trying to apply some grace to the situation. Then that diffuses that moment of possibly holding in a slight that would add up to something way bigger at the end of just one day. So like you count all those incidents and those moments where you have the opportunity to feel like a victim and just being like, you know what? I let it go. Like you, you might've actually meant to hurt me. You might've actually thought like, I hate you as, you know, a black woman, but I forgive you. And I do that for myself. Not even for, they might know. I'll never walk into that person again, most likely. But for me, it gives me so much like peace and relief in a way that I feel works in the form of cognitive behavioral therapy, where I'm no longer triggered by just someone being, you know, a white male and just like doing whatever they're doing and feeling like that's always linked to me being a black woman. And it's always in opposition to me. Um, and another example would be um, like for the example, the N word, I, I talked about this in a live stream this week, but this whole Joe Rogan thing is it's kind of helped me put into per in more words, given me more words to sort of say that I know that people have struggled with bad words or with I just horrible ideas of other groups of people like to pretend like they like people always have to be perfect and always have to have great ideas about women and every race and they're just they're always saints all the time is very unrealistic we have to understand that we're all like we're all gonna mess up at some point and what do you do about that are you always going to be hurt by people um messing up or do you want to recognize that you have the opportunity to let like let go of that and just forgive people for the mistakes they've made in the past because you've also made a bunch of mistakes and when your time comes what do you want do you want grace and forgiveness or do you want to like burn at the stake um yeah so yeah that that's how i use forgiveness daily to kind of counteract those microaggressions and ultimately like the whole worldview of systemic racism mm. it's hard for me to actually find them these days so i agree with you but i'm I want to know what you would say to someone who would say, you know, I love the backpack analogy. 
Mm. And I think it's very apt, but I think that people conceptualize it differently. Some people would say it's not a backpack, it's like a turtle mm. shell. And if I take it off, I'm vulnerable. Mm. And if I take it off, I'm not safe. The turtle shell is actually allowing me to move around in the world in a way that makes me safer, even though it's heavy, even though I have to learn to do things with that extra weight. That mm. extra weight is the thing that I am forced to deal with because I am a, you know, insert identity markers here, right? Mm. And I can see that. I can see how that would be the perspective that they have. And I can see how they would say, you know, the fact that you get to call it a backpack and that mm. you get to say you can take the backpack off, mm. that's almost a sign of privilege on your part that you don't, or, or, or at least ignorance, mm. right? So, so maybe you think you can take the backpack off, but you can't. Or yeah. if you if you actually can, it's because you're lucky. It's not because everyone can, you know. Mm. So uh, what would you say there? What would you say to that? Yeah, that's a very interesting. I love the illustration of, of a turtle shell. Um, yeah. I, I would just look at the rate of fragility um, and how, like, I read this book, The Calling of the American Mind. It, was, it helped me mm -hmm. put even more words to sort of ideas that I felt. But if we look at the hypersensitivity that has developed over time um, where we now uh, kind of marry harm with like actual physical violence um, and concept creep where, you know, just words like harm in, in, in and of themselves or trauma, for example, trauma went from like a term used for very severe real cases of or violence or surviving abuse to now you know, I'm traumatized because like you blocked me off as I was trying to cross the street. It's like, if we do look at how hypersensitive young people are becoming, um, the level of fragility, the level of, um, you know, experiencing the amounts of, of harm being experienced, I would argue that if you do look at that, and I believe the data is out there, I, I do believe the calling of the American mind will kind of show you some good comparative statistics I would argue that that is significant of the fact that you don't actually have a turtle shell. Whatever you might have had prior was the turtle shell, and now you are now exposed, and you're way more sensitive. Issues are way more tender. Mm. And so, yeah, I'll just say, look, look at that. those examples. College campuses are now, you say one wrong thing on Twitter, like you are now going to lose your job, and tenured professors are also at risk. So I would argue that people are becoming a lot more burdened more than they realize. I like that. That's very powerful. And, and to be honest, like, you know, if, well, if Angel asked me that question, I would say, just, just try it out. There's really no harm in letting go. You know, I, I, I think there is a certain mindset that, <laughs> that clings onto the struggle because the struggle has, has been so central to their life. It's almost been an identity. And, and sometimes there are, you know, gains to be made from embodying that kind of thinking. But, but there's also externalities. And I think we hardly discuss the costs mm. of, you know, thinking this way. And the costs are personal, psychological, but it's also societal. And, you know, that's why what you spoke about, about forgiveness is actually really, really important. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, getting back to that, that bit about forgiveness, what is it about that lens that you had mm. that didn't allow for that? It didn't allow for forgiveness because there is a there is there is a possibility for someone to have a, a worldview where they are mm -hmm. noticing microaggressions but then forgiving them, mm -hmm. and they are 
they are, you know, hyper aware of racism, but also have that forgiveness mindset. There, maybe there is a, a, a way to be hyper woke in, in the real sense of that term, you know, what it meant 20 years ago, uh, being woke, but also, uh, having the, the sort of, uh, a healthy detachment from it and saying, you know, I'm not going to internalize this stuff. I'm just aware of it. Yeah. Um, but what, what in your case made that difficult or impossible? Yeah, I, I think by the very nature of wokeness, kind of ascribing a definite reason behind actions, it makes it very hard for someone to give anyone the benefit of the doubt. Because the whole point of critical race theory, for example, is to understand why there are at, at least understanding that racism is the reason why there are disparities between uh, different groups and different outcomes. So you are sort of pinning a, a definite reason behind every action uh, down to the, if you want to talk about like the systemic level and like the corporate area, like sphere of life or down to the microaggressions, the point of critical race theory is to insert the, the intention of racism. So when I say, okay, now I'm going to forgive this person for what they've done in order for me to really healthily have a real letting go moment. I have to give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe it wasn't racism or it wasn't just racism. Um, and because of that, I am kind of, I'm kind of dismissing in a way that critical lens because I'm saying they might've just been uh, constipated. Like, honestly, like some of these people are <laughs> always agitated and they have road rage because of something as simple as constipation. So I'm, I'm broadening the scope and by that very broadening, it is like it does kind of dilute the critical theory concept and worldview. And I actually, because I didn't really know a lot of these terms or that they were specifically critical race theory or queer theory, um, it just was a natural occurrence. I wasn't like, I'm trying to fight this ideology. It was just like naturally I was just giving people the benefit of the doubt from like 20, late 2018 to uh, like mid-2019. So, yeah, I, I, I hope maybe there are people who are hyper woke, but to just like dismiss your own like assumption that, you know, the reason behind all these actions by that mm. very action you are sort of in a way saying maybe maybe this critical lens isn't the only lens that I can view interactions in the world. I love it. All right, Kimmy, we always ask um, our guests the same final question. And um, in some ways, I think you've answered it already. <laughs> But uh, we'll ask it anyway. Um, so our focus at FAIR is to promote a pro-human perspective. And our question to you is, what does pro-human mean to you? And, and how can everyday people embody that kind of th that value um, more? Pro-human to me is, first of all, with the, beginning with yourself, like understand that you are a fully fledged human being and like you're not no other person because of any um physical attribute is better than you or less than you um so beginning with yourself understanding that you're equal to anyone on this planet and then sort of extending that like that idea and that understanding to everyone else like they're equal to you they're not better than they're not less than um I wouldn't even take it because I am a Christian. I, there is a verse that says, treat other people better than yourselves, like whoever that might be. So I, I do think that that kind of goes into my philosophy. 
Um, but yeah, that would be a pro-human approach to me. And what was what was the second um, question? How can everyday people embody that more? Like, do you have any advice? Yeah. yeah. Totally understand that we all mess up. Like we're, we're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. Everyone's going to mess up. So we do need to have a realistic expectation for what to do when we do mess up. Um, and that for me is embodying forgiveness and also for yourself, just trusting that people will forgive you when your time comes as well. That's really beautiful. And we're so grateful that we got a chance to talk to you today. I am so happy to have been on. Thank you so much, Melissa and Angel. I like love your work. I very am very, very much inspired by what y'all do. So thank you so much for having me. We absolutely love your YouTube content. So for everyone watching, please check it out. Go to Kimmy Katiti's YouTube channel and uh, subscribe. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.